We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. We're going to be in Psalm tonight. Uh, we are going to be in Psalm 25 and then follow up with Psalm 26. Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble, he guides in justice, and the humble, he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me, and have mercy on me. For I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. 
I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with adulterous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites, for I hated the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, in whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place, and the congregations I will bless the Lord. Um, I do want to just uh, say one thing. Like I've said before, I read these multiple times before I read them, and it didn't catch me until just now. But where in verse 3, I have walked in your truth. So much now people talk about, well, what is your truth? You know, but what really matters is the Lord's truth. Focus on that. Thank you for coming out this evening. It's a blessing to be with you. Uh, Would you turn your Bible this evening to Ezra chapter 9, please? Ezra chapter 9. We have two chapters left, and Lord willing, we will be able to glean something from chapter 9 this evening together, and then we'll have one more chapter to cover before we come to a conclusion of this study, at least for the time being, until the Lord sees fit for us to be in this book again. There's certainly much more that could be learned from this book than some of the just you know the top tier things perhaps that we've addressed and hopefully uh, uh, sought to apply to our lives. Before we look into the text, would you just pray with me? Ask for the Lord's help. Oh God, our gracious God who abounds in steadfast love. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel. Lord, and that you chose to come in a lowly estate, not just in, your, in the birth of in the nature of his birth, but, Lord, in, also in his life. Lord, as, uh, Lord, as we learn that uh, you came in a humble manner, and humbled yourself even to the point of death. Thank you for that. Lord, help us now. May your spirit guide us into all truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to just read the text of chapter 9 and then uh, glean some truth from it this evening. I don't plan on keeping us super long this evening, uh, but uh, long enough that uh, we can learn something and uh, seek to grow from it. Ezra records here in chapter 9 the following. A 
account of his return and the things which came to his attention upon that arrival, which we looked upon looked at last time in chapter eight. So at, in verse one, when he says, uh, "When these things were done, that calls to recollection the things that happened uh, just after their arrival in Jerusalem, for instance, um, there were the sacrifices that were made, and even uh, more closely to verse 1 and verse 36, it was uh, there was the deliverance of the orders of the king to the surrounding rulers, officials, the Persian officials, regarding how they were to treat the Israelites and to give them gifts and to treat them well, support the work and the people. Verse 1, though, Ezra writes, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So, when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting. And having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And in verses 16 to 15, we see this prayer of confession. This is what Ezra prays to God. It says, and I said, oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the, grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, or we are slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. But he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh, our God, 
What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us, had consumed us? so that there would be no remnant or survivor. O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant, as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. I chose to read all of this at once because I think it's helpful to really just soak in the emotion of Ezra, his reaction to what he has heard, the news of Israel's sin, the contrite heart that he has, and the sense of the weight of the guilt, not just felt by those who have committed the sin, but all of Israel. Ezra includes himself in that category, solidarity with the people, although he had not committed this particular sin, we see the great weight that he feels, that he shoulders upon himself. As we look at the text this evening, I want us to consider how Ezra does respond or react to what he's heard and draw from that a few lessons and truths for ourselves as we consider the weight of guilt from sin. We see in verses 1 and 2, Ezra is informed of Israel's sins. The leaders of Israel brought to Ezra's attention a sin being extensively practiced in Israel, presumably by those who had returned previously to Jerusalem. It's unlikely that these who were committing the sin were those who had just returned with Ezra. Only roughly four months had passed. Of course, you know, that's time for relationships to be built and marriages to happen. But likely, these are people who had returned earlier on in the first return uh, under Zerubbabel's leadership. And, uh, you know, for whatever whatever the reason be, you know, even in that short of time, they had already fallen into great sin. Demonstrates that their heart was not truly where it should have been, having returned, having uh, you know reestablished the sacrificial te- uh, sacrificial system. They had rebuilt the temple, and yet there was still a heart issue in these people, despite you know the 
kind of outward progress that they had made in regard to the temple and worship in the temple. We see that instead of separating themselves from the foreigners as they had been instructed to do all the way back from the beginning of the Mosaic law uh, forward, and they had not, instead of separating themselves from the foreigners, the people had taken wives for themselves from the surrounding nations. And the law prohibited uh, intermarriage of Jews with foreigners. And we see this explicitly in Deuteronomy 7 as well as Exodus 34. And I'm going to ask you to turn to that first passage, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we'll read that passage. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1. God's word says here, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriage with them, marriages with them, You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. We we see here in verse 4 the reason why. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So we learn here from Deuteronomy 7 that this, this prohibition against intermarriage is not because of you know some race discrimination, you know, God just, you know, doesn't, hates all other kinds of people besides the Jewish race, and that's how the Jews should, you know, act as well. That's, that's not the case. That's not the reason for this command. Rather, we learn from Deuteronomy 7, 4, that this prohibition is because there is an inevitable effect that these uh, spouses, these wives or husbands, will have on the Jewish people the inevitable effect being that they would cause them to walk away from God and turn to idolatry. And God had chosen them to be a special people, a treasure to him. And so he is a jealous God, not wanting that they should turn from him, desirous of their attention and their soul, uh, affection and worship. God had called them to be a holy race, as we saw in Deuteronomy 7. And so the reason for this prohibition is because of that. They were to be a undefiled uh, people for God, and they were to be undefiled by the idolatrous practices of other nations. And this sin had plagued Israel in the past and had resulted in God's punishment when they disobeyed this command and, and intermarried 
And that was one of the reasons for which they were exiled out of the land, you know, amongst other sins that they had committed. They had turned away from God and turned to the pagan worship of surrounding nations. Now, turning back our attention to Ezra 9, part of the reason this sin went unaddressed once again here in Israel was because the men of Israel, who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation, were also participating in this sin. You see that at the end of verse 2? It says, uh, Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Man, you know, when there's a lack of good leadership, what's to be expected but for the others to follow suit in that same kind of pattern of behavior and action? You know, uh, you know what's, what's to cause them from not you know, following in that path? Of course, it doesn't mean they're still not personally culpable and responsible. You know, just because there's bad leadership is not an excuse, a justification for sin, but it sure makes it harder to maintain that faithfulness uh, when there's not good leadership and good exam- examples from, from the top. So we see here the defilement of the people had risen to the highest ranks. So, you know, fully permeated the nation at this point. We see uh, then in verses 3 through 5, Ezra's reacts to this sin that comes to his attention. And Ezra's reaction to this news, I think, is a very good lesson for us as we consider how we are to react, not to just, you know, our sin, because, you know, Ezra hadn't participated in this sin directly, but how we are to just generally react to sin, sin in the world, sin specifically in, you know, in God's people, sin in the church, and then, of course, sin in our own life as well. We see, uh, look with me at verse 3. It says, So when I heard this, that's Ezra speaking, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. The tearing of Ezra's garment and cloak and the pulling out of his hair are only an outward expression of what's an inward distress and remorse at this news. You know, a common kind of practice in that day and amidst distress, remorse, uh, you know, of whether it be a, an issue of sin or just a fear of, you know, uh, of the enemies around them. We see this often in the Psalms. And David's response is the tearing of the cloak, utter distress. The word astonished is used uh, two times here at the end of verse 3, but then at the end of verse 4. It literally means to be stricken in the heart, to be shattered. What a lesson for us as we consider how we are to react to sin. You know, oh well, you know, that's the one response. You know, no big deal. We'll just kind of move on and, you know, kind of, brush it under the rug. No, that's not Ezra's response. His first reaction is to be shattered in the heart. That is the sign of a contrite spirit. That is what a humble, contrite spirit does. That's what a a conscience that is uh, sensitive to sin does. It responds 
by being shattered in the heart, remorseful, recognizing the weight of the guilt for the sin that's been committed. But we see here the reaction of Ezra is accompanied by a reaction of others as well. Verse 4 says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. I take that kind of statement to refer to those who were sensitive to the sin, who were fearing God, and more specifically here, fearing the words of God, which they knew to well, prohibited them from intermarriage. They were so sensitive to that that they, like Ezra, responded remorsefully at the news. I'm not sure that these are specifically those who had participated in this sin. Perhaps there were a number of those who responded, you know, just very off the bat in that way. But I think specifically those, these are those who had returned with Ezra who were sensitive to God at that time. They hadn't grown callous like others had, but were sensitive to God's word and therefore recognized that the, the guilt of those people, their brothers, and Israel was also their guilt as well. Verse 4, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I, that is Ezra, sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Have you ever considered the weight of guilt you just sit there for a while. That's what Ezra did. It says, until the evening sacrifice, he sat, presumably thinking upon the great sin that had been committed, perhaps thinking upon how he would address the people, how he would address God, how he would respond in the days to come, having heard this news. Sin, of course, needs to be swiftly dealt with, but sometimes it requires us to simply sit there and consider what has been done and not act too hastily, whether in anger or simply saying something that we really don't mean, but simply sitting there and considering the weight of the transgression. And that's what Ezra did. And then at the appropriate time, of course, wanting to observe God's word and participate in the evening sacrifice, Ezra does arise eventually from his fasting, which was assumedly done, presumably done because he was you know, remorseful and contrite. And having torn my garment, he says in verse 5, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Whether or not there's anything, you know, significant in the, you know, the position that Ezra takes falling on his knees, you know, isn't necessarily the, the point. The point is his heart is, per, uh, is properly positioned. It is contrite. It is, it is remorseful. It is recognizing the weight of guilt. And then in verses 16 to 15, we see this prayer of confession. One thing I want to address before we look at this in more detail is that in this prayer of confession, we never see 
Ezra request anything of God. That's somewhat different than a lot of prayers of confession. Uh, You know, Psalm 51, David confesses his sin with Bathsheba. And there are a number of requests that David makes of God in that prayer. And so I think there's something to learn from this, that though we can make a request in our confession, you know, the forgiveness of sin, what Ezra is simply doing in this sense is just laying out the sin before God and saying, God, you act accordingly to what you see fit. And I think that's a lesson for us, that we should not simply just presume God's grace, although we know it is offered to us, but first and foremost say, God, we've sinned, or I've sinned. Act according to how you see fit. Ezra begins this prayer in verse 6 by saying, Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. The proper attitude of the weight and guilt of sin is to be humble, humble about it. There is a a right kind of shame that we can have, that we have disobeyed God and his word humble spirit that comes along with that contriteness. Ezra makes, you know, doesn't kind of couch this in any kind of positive manner. You know, he kind of just puts it out there. Uh, you know, not trying to make it any seem any better than what it actually is. Sometimes we try to do that with our sin, you know, even in our confession, maybe kind of be vague and ambiguous. You know, as if God doesn't really know, you know, how extensive our sin is and really how, how, you know, how much of an offense it is to him. Maybe even more poignantly, sometimes we, we do that when we confess our sins to others. You know, we kind of couch it in such a way that doesn't make us look quite as bad as what our sin is. You know, we kind of just kind of generally talk about our sin. You know, I'm sorry, I, I, I said that to you. I'm sorry that, you know, I, I did that to you. Well, what did you do? What did you say? And Ezra makes, you know, no qualms about this. He simply, simply lays out the, the real raw aspects of their sin. He says in uh, verse 6, For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. The imagery here is almost of, you know, a person who is underwater, drowned in the, in the sheer mass of the iniquity. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens or has lifted up as it has, you know, the level of water has gone all the way up to the heavens. And then in verses, verse 7 and following, he says, Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And so Ezra doesn't only focus on the immediate sin, the immediate guilt, but also goes back and, and just forthrightly puts out the fact that even before now, you know, this isn't, no, this isn't any new sin, you know, this isn't just the first time that we've, you know, 
felt the weight of the guilt of our sin, you know, filled up the measure of our guilt. We've, we've acted wickedly in the past, Ezra admits, on behalf of the people. He says in verse 7, For our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to, the cap- to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. Ezra simply acknowledges that, you know, the suffering that they've received in the past at the edge of the sword and captivity was rightly theirs, a right just punishment for their past sin. But at the same time, Ezra acknowledges that for whatever the reason, God has still chosen to show his grace. He says in verse 8, And now for a little while, even just for a moment, is what Ezra means here, just a small glimmer, for a small amount of time, in a small measure, God's grace has been shown. How has it been shown? Ezra tells us, in that he has left us a remnant to escape. Why? After all that they have done, the guilt that has built up against their account, for some reason God has shown his grace to leave a remnant, to give us a peg in, a, in his holy place. This kind of figure of speech, this imagery is of a tent that is securely placed you know, in a, in a specific and, uh, you know, promised location. God has done that for them. He has placed their peg back in Jerusalem, given them a place of security and promise and position in the, in the holy land. The end of verse 8, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves. I think actually a better translation is for we are slaves. What Ezra is recognizing here is that, you know, we're back in the land, but we're still slaves. We're still slaves to, you know, this nation, you know, to the east, to Persia. They're not, they're not like they were, but, you know, back during you know, uh, during the time of David, you know, where they are, you know, securely in the land, you know, they are positioned in a place of honor amongst other nations. God is blessing them. They have security. They have his blessing and promises uh, that come from obedience to the covenant. They are not experiencing that, as I recognize that. They may be back in the land as a result of a measure of God's grace, but it's not what it was. They are still slaves. Verse 9, Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, yet he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, Ezra here in these last few verses is acknowledging that despite the guilt on their account, 
for whatever reason, God has still shown his mercy and grace in that they have returned to the land and that God has blessed them and provided a house to rebuild the ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, just as a note here, the wall here doesn't refer specifically to the wall surrounding Jerusalem. It's kind of clear from the fact that he says a wall in Judah. Well, never were there a wall that surrounded all of Judah. You know, there's the wall that goes around Jerusalem that Nehemiah would, you know, build later on. So what Ezra means here simply is that God has has, has caused his protection to surround Judah and Jerusalem, to provide fortification and security in him and God, uh, safety from those around them. And then Ezra says in verse 10, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? God's shown his mercy, his grace, and yet we continue to sin. We continue to fill up our iniquities, our guilt. So what do we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, and then he goes on to, to list in a kind of summation you know, not any necessarily referencing any specific prophet, but kind of uh, drawing all the prophets together and what they said into one kind of conclusion, which is this. The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. And so uh, the prophets spoke of a land in which they'd enter, which was filled up to the brim, expansive, you know, went from one end to the other, was filled with, with uh, the defilement of the pagan nations. And so on that basis then, even referencing, I think alluding to Deuteronomy 7 in verse 12, Ezra uh, reflects on the fact that they were not to take wives or, or, uh, <clears throat> or husbands for their daughters so as to not give you know, the people of the land peace and prosperity. That was not their, you know, their due reward. Their due reward was God's punishment and the, and the people of Israel's prosperity and the inheritance of the land for their children, as verse 12 says. And then verse 13, And after all, all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since our God has punished us less than our iniquities Deserve The grammar of this is perhaps not the easiest to follow. But what Ezra is simply saying is, despite our evil deeds and our great guilt, God has chosen to punish us less than our iniquities deserve or below our iniquities. I think that's a reference back to what he says uh, in verse 6, an illusion that our, our, our guilt has risen above our heads, yet God's response is below that, less than what is deserving. In that, he has given us such deliverance as this. That is how Ezra had, uh, the people of God had experienced tangibly the fact that God's punishment was less than what they deserve, that God was gracious and merciful to them. 
And so Ezra says in verse 14, then should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? And in a rhetorical fashion, the answer is what? Of course, no, they shouldn't. Another rhetorical question here, would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that we would be, uh, that there would be no remnant or survivor? I think the answer to this is he could. If they were to continue in the sin, God rightly so could punish them. That's what their guilt deserved. Of course, we have to factor in, you know, all of God's promises in the past that, you know, God would preserve them and through them the Messiah would come. God ultimately, um, you know, would not allow them to utterly be destroyed by, you know, the hand of other nations or by his own hand. But, you know, on a very kind of simple level, God certainly could. Their, their sin was worthy of God's just punishment. So Ezra ends his prayer in this way, in verse 15. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this, that is, because of this guilt that they have. Ezra's, Ezra's response here to Israel's sin and his prayer of confession has a number of lessons for us today. First being that our response to sin should be similar to Ezra's, that we should be remorseful. Someone who's seeking to be holy before God recognizes that sin is a great offense. Sin is a great offense to God. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing, it's no position of a person, especially one of God's people, to kind of blow off God's command and say, oh, well, you know, yeah, I know that God has told us not to intermarry. I know that God's told us not to worship idols. But what does it really matter? You know, what's God going to do anyways about it? That seems to be the attitude of God's people, that they presume upon God's grace as if it's no big deal to God that they sin and that, you know, God will simply overlook it. That's a fallen understanding, a flawed understanding of God's nature, who he is, his justice. You know, it's, a, it's a too much of an emphasis on God's mercy and not enough on his justice. God is certainly both, but we can't forsake the one at the, or hold on to the one at the expense of the other. Of course, as we think in, in uh, connection to the New Testament, we, we do know that we have God's grace. But even Romans tells us what? Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And so, though we have God's grace, and though our iniquities have been laid upon the Son of God so that we can have forgiveness, we must at the same time recognize that God's or our guilt is deserving of God's just punishment. And any other response from God other than that 
is an act of grace. Consider just for a moment before we close this evening your own salvation. Sin's guilt is deserving of your punishment. The guilt on your account when you were unsaved is deserving of God's punishment. Don't presume upon God's grace to overlook that as if it's no big deal to God, especially if you're not a follower of God today. But even if you are, are you simply just kind of presuming upon God's grace and say, well, I know that if you know, 1 John 1, 9 tells me if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just. Or are you like Ezra, who was a man of God, yet was remorseful, contrite, shattered in heart, at a sin that was not even his own? Remember that any other response from God other than his just punishment is an act of grace and that we see that highlighted in the cross of Christ, in your salvation, in my salvation. But that's, doesn't, that's not just for our salvation. That's every time we sin, every time we disobey God, except for God's grace that is still operating in your life we would be deserving of his just punishment. So it's not just an act that God does at salvation, you know, that, that we depend daily upon that grace to save us from God's just punishment. So as we close this evening, may I encourage us to consider the weight of sin's guilt, that it's no light matter, whether it be our own sin or the sin of some other person. You know, as a body of Christ, we should feel a sense of solidarity, not that we're, you know, specifically culpable for the sin of another brother, but we should feel the weight of that in our lives, in the life of the church, and seek to act appropriately, properly in light of that sin whether it be in their life or our life. And thank God that for whatever reason, as Ezra expressed, God has chosen to show his mercy and grace as undeserving as it is. Would you go with me, uh, go to prayer with me now? Heavenly Father, we pray as we go our way this evening, may we have the attitude and reaction of Ezra who at the news of the sin committed by his people was shattered in heart, exemplifying a conscience that was sensitive to sin, exemplifying an understanding of what sin is and the guilt that comes from that. And then, Lord, may we not presume upon your grace, but recognize the great cost that comes from our sin. Lord, we thank you that you 
showed your grace upon us, that you laid upon your Son the iniquities of us all, so that we might have forgiveness of sins, not just at that moment of salvation, but day after day. Lord, that guilt has been laid upon your Son on our behalf. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.